0: unmistakable evidence has established the fact he is the creator and sustainer of all the world. Welcome to the Truth 316 Podcast, the place that we honor that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Our prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And today we are looking at adoption. We are looking at the process of how we become the children of God and also what that means and the concepts that are behind it, the supporting uh, sub doctrines, if you will, and this really is our most likely our most comforting doctrine. I mean, adoption. What does that mean? To be brought into the family of God. Now, for those of us that are raised by loving parents, we know the comfort and the safety that we have when we when we were children and we ran into a bully and we would just you know see our parents and we would run and jump into their arms and feel the comfort and the safety that we had with with being with them there that one that was there to protect us and to comfort us um uh, but there are some of those uh, that really didn't have an experience of loving parents and sometimes even those that have parents that are the cause of pain and suffering for children and yet uh, so we would think maybe they don't understand what The love of a a true parent is, but really from their own testimonies, from what people have spoken of, we know that these people really did understand what that love was supposed to look like. They understood the ideals of that love and that they longed for it. And this is coming from other people's own testimonies. So perhaps that's why such people, uh, when they experience salvation of the Lord, uh, these these people that had suffered from the hands of their parents or whatever, they actually have a better understanding and they appreciate more being now a, a child of God. And they are more willing and more excited to take this message out into the public realm of, of that love that they've now received. And uh, so anyway, let's take a look at our primary scripture of adoption and then we'll step away and define a few other relative terms uh, in regard to the forgiveness of God. So in our first verse here from Romans 8, our first scriptures, verses 14 through 17, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness With our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So first thing we see here is that there's are those led by the Spirit. So this is a reminder of the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then we see the word fear, for did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Um fear, of course, uh like for as a child, we were once scared and helpless, and but now we have the right of the full confidence of this new reality, being in the protection of our loving Father, our Heavenly Father. And again, it's the Holy Spirit who does the work for us. In ourselves, we can do nothing, but God has to act on our behalf. This is love, correct? So the love of God is reaching down and enabling the elect to reach out in faith. So this is the concept of adoption, and we need to take a look at some of these other underlying doctrines of propitiation, expiation, and imputation to uh, give us a better understanding of why the Father adopts us or how he makes this possible. So let's take our first look at propitiation. Now don't worry, some of these words seem a little bit big, but they are it's just because they might be unfamiliar to us, but propitiation here is... Uh, a term that simply means satisfaction. Uh, in other words, it's the appeasing of God and it falls on the heels of atonement. So here we have to have this blood sacrifice uh, to cover the sins of God's elect people. And it was that covering of blood that appeased or satisfied God. So this is the propitiation. Uh, in the Old Testament, that blood sacrifice, uh, let's just say on even on the Day of Atonement, It had to be done year after year. So it was only temporary. But whose blood was it that would fully satisfy God? Uh, Of course, it was Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at a few verses here. So backing up in Romans to chapter 3, we see verses 24 through 25 saying that, "...being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, that is in Christ Jesus." whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to, his dem- to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So there's a ton in this scripture here. Uh, we see concepts of justification, uh, redemption, propitiation, forbearance. We even see Passover here. Uh, But justification, that's where we are now seen by God as righteous, that is, as if if we had never sinned. And then we also see redemption, which is the price required uh, that Jesus paid for us to buy us off the slave block of sin. And, of course, uh, our primary focus here is propitiation, where we see that it is Christ Jesus and his shed blood, which is the only satisfying factor to the Father. This is why, you know, work salvation is so ridiculous. It's blasphemous. I mean, we, there's no way that we can satisfy God because we have an insurmountable or infinite depth of sin to pay for. And of course, that can only be done by Jesus Christ. Let's take a look here at our next Verse in Hebrews, it says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, we just can substitute satisfaction in lieu of propitiation here, to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. And that'll help us to uh, understand that concept a little bit better, even though it does run deeper than that. But here in the book of Hebrews, we see that Christ fulfills the ultimate role of, of high priest, that Old Testament law and the sacrificial system, Christ has come once and for all to fulfill, right? Uh, so, But all that Aaron and the rest of the high priest did throughout history to act on the behalf of the Israelites, that was all only temporary, but Jesus, who is our true high priest, his sacrifice was perfect. It was permanent, and he propitiates or satisfies forever the Father's wrath. Let's take a look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and it says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Again, Uh, He himself is the satisfaction for our sins, but here we see the whole world. And again, uh, we're isolating this a little bit. So we got to be careful of the context uh, just to make sure uh, that we're all on the same page. Uh, He's the propitiation of the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? Does it mean every single person that has ever lived or ever will live? It is taken that way by a lot of different people, but if we keep the context and in harmony with the other scriptures, we know that when it speaks like this of the whole world, it's speaking of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Therefore, it's not just for the, the Jews, but for the Gentiles that are far off as well. And we see a couple chapters later here in 1 John chapter 4 that it says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So going back to my earlier comment, we could not have loved God on our own, right? Because we were enemies of God. We hated God in our natural state. But God here loves the elect. It says that he loved us. That's his chosen people. He sends the son. The son acts. How does the son act? He, He lives a perfect life. And then he sheds his innocent blood and he atones for the people. So here's a, here's the atonement of, of Christ. And atonement contains this sub-doctrine of propitiation. It satisfies. The atoning blood of Christ satisfies. It perfectly appeases God and our due wrath. So that's propitiation, satisfaction. Now let's take a look at kind of its counterpart here of expiation. And where propitiation is something that was applied or done for us, it was Christ's satisfaction applied to us, to God, we see that expiation is now something that is something that is taken away from us. The prefix X means to take out. All right, so you're not going to really see expiation in a Bible search. Uh, I see that it was like in one place in the, in the Revised Standard Version. But, you know, like anything else, Like, for example, Trinity, you're not going to find that word if you do a Bible search, but the concept is certainly, you know, throughout the scriptures, and so is expiation. We see that the expiation here is going to be prevalent throughout the Bible, and it's um, always going to be related to the theme of atonement. So here we have the Revised Standard Version translating kind of almost in an opposite fashion particular word so in the king james bible and almost all the other scriptures it says that he's to be the propitiation for our sins and here the revised standard version says that he sent his son to be the expiation for our sins so one is to be the satisfaction for our sins and the second one says to be the expiation or to have our sins removed and because these concepts are both accomplished in the same act it satisfies both right It it covers, it satisfies God, and it also removes our sin. So it might not be necessarily a bad thing. But remember how I said these are both related to the atonement. So let's see what the new Revised Standard Version did to clean this up a little bit here. We see where it was propitiation and then expiation. We see now it's listed as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I think it does justice here in this update, because all of these things take place in the atoning sacrifice. So here to read this verse one more time, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the blood of Christ atones, that means it covers our sins. And through that covering, it satisfies God. It also removes our sins. That's the love of God. So it takes our sins away. And these doctrines here of propitiation or expiation they all lie within our main theme of atonement so here it's it's fine to be used this way so the atoning sacrifice works great you know it's a covering a washing away and and god is also satisfied Uh, i have also here listed um, just a little definition of expiation uh, which you can take a look at in your own time but i'll just read it quick it says the hebrew family of words translated by expiation Speaks fundamentally of a solution for sin, and the most common association is with the idea of atonement. Expiation has to do with the blot of sin, and hence the term is related to such words as forgive, purge, cleanse, or atone. So, to expiate in regard to our sin is to blot it out, to remove it. Jesus does this, and He renders our sin completely as if it were never there to begin with. So, we don't have to compete the propitiation and expiation against each other, right? But what you do is you use it in terms of context. So what would be what would be the best way to determine if we're talking about the doctrine of propitiation or expiation? So is the text showing that it's turning God's wrath away from us or is it showing a covering or a removal or forgiveness of our sins? So expiation again focuses on the removal of sin and propitiation on the appeasement of God's wrath. Uh, atonement in the scriptures encompasses both of these concepts, as we said earlier. So let's take a look at our next sub-doctrine here of imputation. And imputation is a word that designates anything that's reckoned to us, something that's put to our account. For example, if you put $100 in my bank account, you imputed it to me. It's imputed to me. It is now legally my hundred dollars. It's been accounted to my possession. So the first account that we have of imputation in the scriptures actually is from Adam. So let's take a look. So Romans 5, 12 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So what is imputed to men here? Uh, it says that sin is. So Adam sinned and yet it's saying that we are guilty that's imputation adam sins his sins imputed unto us now some people don't like that concept uh i really don't think it can be much clearer than it's stated here uh, as far as what the scripture says but just in case you don't like that um having adam's sin imputed to you uh you'll have to wrestle with that doctrine on your own but it still says regardless you have your own sin to count for so because adam sinned We've all sinned, right? And we all have our own personal sins to account for. So here we see the concept of imputation. Adam's sin is now running through all men. Now, it's not necessarily that we're paying for Adam's sin, but by the fall, we are therefore all sinners. But what's the contrast here? It's the second Adam. Let's take a look. At our next verse, just a few verses later, it says, But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, abounded to many. So people are fallen in Adam, but they're graced in Christ. We see the imputation of sin of Adam and then the freedom from it in Christ. The biblical doctrine of imputation is really a double imputation. That means that something is attributed to us. That's Christ's um, righteousness is attributed to us, but also something is attributed back to Christ. So grace is really a gift of double imputation here. We have Christ's righteousness applied to us, and our sin is accounted to Christ. This, by the way, is a legal transaction. So let's take a look at a few supporting verses. So here in Philemon, we're going to see Paul's going to assume the debt of... Onesimus and we have anything that's going to be a charge to his account is going to be taken care of uh, really by Paul so it says Paul says here if you then account me as a partner receive him as you would me but if he has wronged you or owes you anything put that to my account so here you see that Paul is letting um, Onesimus' account be a charge to Paul and then in Psalm 32 we see in the old testament account here that blessed is the man who the lord does not impute iniquity so the lord does not impute iniquity so is there no sin here well yeah there's there's sin but yahweh is not charging it to this man's account could he of course he is the man's actually guilty of it but it's saying here that the lord is, does not impute that charge to him so let's take a look at how our sins we're accounted to Christ. Let's go to another Old Testament verse in Isaiah that we're familiar with. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all so you can just see how this entire passage is just laced with imputation things that are being uh, charged to one person being taken care of by another and let's let's look at a couple of these right now so he's borne our griefs he's carried our sorrows um, he's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities, right? All of these things he's taken on to his account. Now, what about us? Well, our peace, it says, comes from his chastening. Um, we are healed. And so our healing, we're made alive. We're made safe. We are saved by him. So all of these things of the goodness of Christ are now attributed to us. They're imputed to our account. Um, just an amazing passage here in the Old Testament. And then probably here our our best look is going to come from Second Corinthians in chapter five, verse twenty-one. It says, "For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him." So we see this imputation taking place. The imputed righteousness of God is attributed to us, and he takes on our sin. He made him that is christ who knew no sin so god gives to christ who's completely innocent all of our sin to bear on the cross and what's the result of it we get the righteousness of god in him so uh, our sin to him his righteousness to us this is that double accounting or the transaction and it defines perfectly our doctrine of imputation here so because this is a legal transaction It's legal and binding, and we have now forgiveness, and this allows us to have that transaction of adoption that we began our study with. So it's legal, it's binding, and permanent, of course, and it's for all whom Christ died. The application is according to those whom God chooses unto himself. Let's take a look at Isaiah 43. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, Do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So we're talking about the concept of adoption now. And he's calling people his sons and his daughters. So it's by God's command. And then in 2 Corinthians it says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty Lord. So how can how can somebody be a daughter or a son? Well, it's by adoption, and it, it's only because of the satisfaction of the obedient son through his payment on the cross. His imputed righteousness unto us allows us to be qualified as the sons of God, and he adopts us. So let's take a look here at 1 John 3.1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So you want to know love? Here it is. For all whom the Spirit calls, you are now children of God. Amazing. So you're adopted. It's legal. It's binding. Uh, it's paid by the blood of Christ. And it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to our first scripture now that we studied or that we looked at um, at the opening of the study in Romans 8, and read it through again, keeping all these concepts in mind here. So, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs heirs of god and joint heirs with christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may be also glorified with him so here it is uh we understand our sin we understand our fallenness that we're so far away we're filled with fear but now through this adoption we have the right to cry out abba father that's that's the most intimate way of calling it's like a child saying daddy you know just crying out and we we know what that is and then we are safe. We run into his loving arms and we have nothing left to fear, right? And with God, of course, the war is now completely won and we're children of him. We're heirs of God. Amazingly enough, we're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. And now all we're doing is waiting for that final call to return eternity where we'll have the full realization of no longer sin being part of our flesh. So with this knowledge of truth, the big question is, Okay, now you're a child of God, so what does that do for your tomorrow? What does that look like in terms of action? We're called children of God, and likewise, our reaction of love says that if you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. So we have to have this obedience now to our loving Father. So what is that going to look like in our lives as we walk throughout this world? That's a huge question. It's a huge question for me. It's a huge question uh, for all of us because we we struggle with obedience, right? We it's easy to be a Christian in, in your own private closet, but how are we looking in the eyes of the world? Who are we sharing this truth with? Well, that's our look at adoption. Let's go ahead and and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you stoop down and. You loved upon us. You loved us so much that you would send your son to die on that cross to pay that perfect price to atone for our sins where you are now satisfied. You don't have to take your wrath out on us, but you've taken it out on your own son. And You've removed our sin. You've called us your children. You've adopted us. You've given us the seal of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our faith. And now we have uh, we want to respond to that likewise in love unto you in obedience for the call that you've, you've given us, that commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. Help us to have courage to do that. Help us to no longer fear. That's the promise that as your children, we have nothing to fear. And Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.